What difference would it make if you understood basic Bible archaeology? I mean, it's one thing to read a Bible passage that mentions a place somewhere in the Holy Land. It's quite another to be able to see that place in a map or photo in line with the text. Just ahead, we'll help you see the places of the Bible in the passages of the Bible. Plus, we'll update you on all the headlines coming out of the Holy Land. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our host is a Middle East expert who has traveled extensively to the Holy Land, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Always great to link up with you, Charlie, as we dig into this week's look at current events. Uh, John, it is great being back in the studio with you. Thanks. Well, let's dig into today's stories. Israel's political struggles continue with their high court hinting it could nullify legislation that is at the core of the current coalition deal. Fragile enough as it is, how could this impact the current government, Charlie? And could this also push them toward, ding, ding, yet again, new elections? Yeah, John, you know, as if all the squabbles we talked about last week, you know, the budget, drafting ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students into the military, and the prime minister's impending trial, as if they're not enough reason to dissolve the government, this action by Israel's High Court of Justice could be the final straw. Now, here are some background on what just happened. A group of petitioners appealed to the High Court to disallow a central part of the coalition agreement between Netanyahu and Gantz. To reach that agreement, the two parties decided to amend part of Israel's basic law and create the position of alternate prime minister. This allowed both Netanyahu and Gantz to have the rank of prime minister, even though only one at a time would actually serve. This was important to Netanyahu since a prime minister doesn't need to step down while under indictment, while a normal member of the Knesset does. Well, the hype court just signaled it could nullify that legislation. Hmm. If they do, Netanyahu would be forced to resign from the Knesset once his rotation as prime minister is over. And rather than doing that, it's almost certain that he'll dissolve the coalition, which allows him to remain in office as prime minister until new elections are held and a new government's formed. The high court gave the government 21 days to respond and defend why they believe this change in the law was legal. Compounding the problem is the fact that this is a major insertion of the high court into the Knesset's right to pass legislation. Some have called on the government simply to ignore the high court's demand, though that would create a different crisis. So the clock's now ticking on what the government will do, but this could certainly result in the government dissolving and new elections being called. Hmm. Well, rumors have surfaced, and I've seen this online, Charlie, suggesting the U.S. and Israel might attack Iran's nuclear facilities, or that the U.S. might allow Israel to do so alone before a new administration takes over in Washington. How uh, credible are these rumors? Yeah, I have to start by saying all rumors need to be taken with a healthy dose of skepticism. Similar rumors were raised at the end of President Bush's time in office, just before President Obama was sworn in. Uh, The rumors back then were quite compelling, but in the end, nothing happened. Now, we do need to be careful not to make too much of that comparison because the situation today, uh, it is different. Iran has now broken the nuclear agreement and stockpiled twice as much nuclear material as it would need to make a nuclear bomb. The time to stop them from developing a nuclear weapon could be closing rapidly, and that is a concern. Another factor is the political situation in Israel. As we just talked about, Netanyahu could be entering a tough political fight if new elections are called. One area where he has popular support has been in foreign policy, including containing Iran and developing closer relations with the Gulf states. An Israeli or a U.S.-Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear facilities 
could promote Netanyahu's re-election chances while also moving Israel and the Gulf states even closer. Now, the New York Times reported that President Trump did consider such an attack, but has been dissuaded from pursuing it. And right now, there are no obvious signs that Israel or the U.S. are preparing to attack, though some see significance in Secretary of State Pompeo's sudden visit to the Middle East. An attack doesn't seem too likely, but we definitely need to keep watching the news surrounding Iran, especially over these next few months. It's Moody Radio's The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East expert and scholar. I'm John Gaker, and on this opening segment, there are four to the program, by the way, we take a look at current events. Our next segment brings us a conversation about biblical archaeology. And then segment three, Charlie, you'll look at listener questions and Our final segment is always a great devotional. Charlie takes us to a place in the Holy Land and rivets it to a passage in Scripture. So all of that's still to come. All right, let's continue with our look at current events. Trying to listen to music or a television program in a room full of people is definitely a problem. You can turn up the sound, but that disturbs everybody else. Or you can put on headphones, but that isolates you from everyone Well, now an Israeli startup has developed technology that offers a third alternative. What is this new system, and how does it work, and when's it going to be available, Charlie? You know, John, you and I both love technology, and this is right up our alley. Israeli startup, it's called Noveto Systems, has developed what they call sound beaming. It's 3D technology that sends out ultrasonic waves to create personal listening pockets. Uh, Their desktop device produces a personal sound bubble that beams sound directly to a listener without the need for headphones. To the person in that sound bubble, the sound is so close it feels like it's inside your ears, just like a headset. But since there's nothing on the individual's ears, they can also hear other sounds in the room quite clearly. Hmm. Those outside the sound bubble don't hear what's being beamed to the listener, even though they're standing or sitting nearby. The system accomplishes this by using a sensing module that locates and tracks the ear position of the listener and then creates sound pockets by the listener's ears. Imagine a speaker that only one person in a room can hear, and the sound can be programmed to follow that listener around the room while not disturbing others. Hmm. That's the promise of this new technology. Now, when's it going to be available? Well, don't look for it under your tree this Christmas, but they hope to have it on the market in time for shoppers next year. All right, so no need to uh, burst our bubble. Couldn't resist that (laughs) one, Charlie. Well, new innovations in cancer treatment hold out great promise, but they're not always effective for everyone, as we've seen. And uh, with an ever-widening list of options, valuable time can be lost if the wrong treatment is chosen. Now, an Israeli company is developing a blood test that could enable doctors to make better choices in treatment options. Help us understand this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, you know, new immunotherapies do have great potential, but the response varies so widely from patient to patient. And that's where an Israeli startup called OncoHost comes in. They're developing a blood test that will tell doctors which immunotherapy treatments are most likely to help specific patients. Uh, Their system identifies up to 1,000 possible proteins in a patient's blood plasma and then uses machine learning to comb through thousands of other blood profiles looking for similar patterns associated with success in the various immunotherapy treatments. The system will flag the therapies most likely to help an individual. In observational trials in the U.S. and Israel, 
the system has proved to be 90% effective in identifying which patients will respond best to particular treatments. Here's why that's so significant. In, in one particular case, a lung cancer patient had a genetic marker associated with a strong response to a certain drug, but his overall protein makeup showed that he had only a 1.6% chance of responding favorably. Rather than wasting weeks or months on a treatment that wouldn't be effective, this new test allowed doctors to immediately choose a different treatment option. Right now, the company's focusing on melanoma and small cell lung cancer, but the program could eventually expand to other types of cancer treatments. They expect this technology to be on the market by late next year. Now, immunotherapies have been seen as a safer and more effective option than radiation or chemotherapy for treating cancer. And this blood plasma test from OncoHost could help doctors precisely match a specific immunotherapy to a patient's blood plasma proteins. As they continue building up the data set for patients, this system will become even more accurate. Now, that's the kind of innovation, John, coming out of amazing mm. Israel that can ultimately save lives. That's a great story, Charlie. We'll look forward to more as that story unfolds. Hey, have you ever met anybody who uh, had too much encouragement in their life? I have never met someone who said, I've been encouraged too much. <laughs> so talk about the value of an encouraging uh, postcard or email to the management at this station. Oh, boy. Uh, the stations are broadcasting our program and others, and uh, they have no idea how effective it is. If you like this program and send a card in, the station is encouraged. And, of course, we're encouraged as well because we hear from the stations. All right. Thanks for encouraging the management at this station with uh, your own assessment of the program and how it's blessed you. Appreciate your taking the time. Well, coming up, Charlie, it's a look at Bible archaeology. How can you and I connect the places of the Bible with the passages in the Bible? A stimulating conversation. You don't want to miss it. It's next on The Land and the Book. In the War for American Independence, geography played a huge role. At the Battle of Trenton, or the Siege of Boston, George Washington leveraged geography to his advantage. But if you don't understand geography and even basic archaeology, you don't really understand our history. Well, the same is true of the Bible. I'm John Geiger, and we're going to pursue this conversation after we first think about this. So you've got Jewish friends, and they seem to be ratcheted up, really involved in causes that have to do with the nation of Israel. How should this impact or intersect with your own faith in Jesus and, more importantly, your relationship with them? Eva Rydelnik serves with Chosen People Ministries. What's the connection here? The connection with Jewish people and the land of Israel is very strong because it goes back to the beginning of the Jewish people. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, mm -hmm. and he showed them the land and mm -hmm. the boundaries of the land. And you look at all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, God's faithfulness to Israel in his relationship to the land of Israel is a central part. And our Jewish friends today, especially with everything political going on, as we often hear from Charlie, uh, it's, you know, it's the center of attention. And when we share our Jewish friends' concern for the land of Israel, it opens the door to share our concern with them for our faith in Messiah of Israel. Yeah, you said something very key there. When we share our concern with our Jewish friends, about their concerns. Exactly, exactly. The things that are heavy on their hearts, they got to matter to us. Isn't that really fundamentally the stuff of a, of a decent friendship? That's it, the stuff of a decent friendship. And friendship is the open door to sharing our love for them and God's love for them 
and sending the Redeemer, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. Love it. Thank you so much. Great wisdom there. Eva Rydelnik with Chosen People Ministries. Appreciate your stopping by. Glad to be here, John. Thank you. And welcome back to The Land and the Book. There are an astounding number of Bibles available today, each touting features and benefits. But if you don't really understand Bible geography and basic archaeology, you're going to miss out on the story behind the story. And I'm guessing that's part of the driving force behind Crossway's Archaeology Study Bible. Dr. David Chapman is professor of New Testament and archaeology at Covenant Theological Seminary. He and Dr. John Currid offered editorial insight into the Archaeology Study Bible. Professor Chapman worked for four years in college ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, and he continues to be active in local and international church ministry and teaching. Uh, Dr. Chapman and his wife, Dr. Tasha Chapman, have two wonderful daughters, and uh, we want to say thanks for connecting with our listeners here on The Land and the Book. Thank you, John. It's a real privilege to be with your people. Well, when you work through this Bible, it just strikes me as a massive undertaking, uh, pairing the biblical text with over 2,000 study notes, uh, 400 full-color photographs, 200 maps and diagrams, 200 sidebars, uh, 14 articles, four timelines. How long did it take to create this Bible? Well, it took us a little over five years, um, kind of from its inception of the idea to um, getting contributors together and and then a wonderful editorial team and, and uh, great people at Crossway that helped us put all the, the photographs and the, the maps together. So yeah, about five years, so it was quite an undertaking. Hmm. Now this is not your uh, old school Bible with a few maps tucked in the back that may or may not be falling out. You guys have included 200 maps. How do those maps uniquely empower us to read passages differently? Yeah, that's great. Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, geography is really crucial for understanding kind of where we are in, in the moment in history. And, uh, of course, so much of the backbone of the, of the Bible is historical through the Old Testament into the New. And so knowing where you're located and you can see people movements, you can see where Jesus is going, you can see where armies are going in the Old Testament. And so maps provide a real vivid way of understanding that. You can understand just how far a journey it was from Abraham to go from Ur to, uh, you know, to the land of promise. So th- those maps are really vital, I think, to the person's experience of Scripture. Dr. David Chapman serves as curator of the W.H. Mayer Institute for Biblical and Archaeological Studies on Covenant Seminary's campus. He's one of the main contributors to Crossway's Archaeology Study Bible. Let me ask you, David, when, when people first pick up their copy of this study Bible, what's the first thing you want them to notice? Yeah, I, I want them to see that it's just very inviting, that there's color pictures so you can kind of visualize the space, that it's, it's very readable. They've, um, Crossway's been careful to make it the front face, and it's just uh, very inviting, I think. But I want it to be uh, something that just draws people in, uh, to their understanding of history, but especially to their awareness of the import of Scripture. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful way to illumine the text that we know so well and for it to become more alive for us. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love the diagrams, the colorful illustrations. Were these commissioned specifically for this work, and, and how did they come about? Yeah, so many of them were. We, um, we've had a, a visual editor, um, David Barrett, who'd also worked on the ESV uh, Bible Atlas. And so uh, drawing on his you know, years of experience, he'd also worked on the ESV study Bible before. Uh, he 
assimilated pictures that were just kind of appropriate to each juncture in the Bible. So if we're dealing with a particular location like Ephesus or Corinth, it's pretty obvious, okay, we, we want a picture that represents that. But also some other images that illumine just kind of everyday artifacts or just what people experienced as they went through life in the Old and New Testament periods. Yeah, I have to agree. You do get the sense that uh, we're being equipped as readers to finally visually understand things that maybe we glossed over or were just ignorant of before. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what we, we hope for, because, you know, even the most uh, detailed aspect of the Scripture can, when it comes alive, can help you bring you into the world of that experience, what it was like to be with the people of God in that era. And hopefully that, that also then invites us into a further realization of the import of Scripture in our own daily lives. And so I think even just a little artifact, you know, if it, if it can trigger that in us, is just a, a, it's wonderful. It really helps us experience yeah. the Scripture. Each book introduction, I notice, gives attention to contributions from archaeology. Now, you are a serious student of archaeology, but I have to ask, were there any surprises for you personally in this journey? Well, there were several along the way. I think, you know, one that comes immediately to mind that you're asking about, I served as the New Testament editor. I've done a lot of work in Roman and Byzantine archaeology, so that, that era, kind of the New Testament era. And yet I was really surprised when our colleague Mark Wilson, who did the notes on Acts and also in the book of Revelation, uh, he lives in Turkey. He works at the Asia Minor Research Center there. And uh, he noted just how many cities, just cities that received just brief mention in the book of Acts, have already seen some excavation or that we can locate on a map because we know precisely where they are. Hmm. And I, I was really quite overwhelmed by that. You know, you know of Ephesus or Corinth, you know, because they've been under excavation for 100 years. But some of these more obscure places also, precise locations are known. And, and that gives me, you know, even increased confidence or just awareness at, at how good a historian um, Luke was as he wrote Luke and Acts. Hmm. That was one of many, many experiences. I think also as a New Testament guy, you know, I go back and read the Old Testament notes that were really edited by my colleague and, and produced by others. And, and I, boy, I, just reading through the book of Psalms and the 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 notes that are there just yes. makes little facets of each psalm and hymn just come alive to mm-hmm. me. In the Song of Solomon, there is a two-page spread on the various uh, fragrances and the plants that create those fragrances. That was absolutely fascinating. This is no small thing. You know, I think uh, here in the West, particularly in the United States, we say spices, isn't that nice? Well, it's a huge deal. It's not a small deal in the Middle East. And that two-page spread really uh, brought that whole uh, aspect to life. Yeah, I'm glad you appreciated that. It's little things like that that suddenly just help you re-enter the world Mm -hmm. of the Old Testament author, and that just brings it even more alive. Yeah. I think uh, timelines are critical as well. There are four in this uh, edition. They do a nice job of juxtaposing world history with Bible events. What's the best way, would you say, to leverage these in our personal Bible study? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, hearing your show, you guys are so aware of these kind of things, and your people are too, and um, but I, I would say, you know, it's, it's very important to recognize where we are in time as we go through each book of the Bible, and especially if you think of the prophets, and that the prophets are given to specific moments and specific times. And so being able to be aware of, okay, we're, we're at this location, these are the events that have happened around it, um, we, we know where we are, say the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom of Israel has already happened, and, and, and we can relate that there. And that gives us a sense of sequence, mm-hmm. a sense of history. The Bible gives us real history. 
but it also helps us again kind of re-enter the, the moment of what the people were experiencing yeah. who were the original recipients of the book. We're talking with Dr. David Chapman, who has spent many years examining the ancient evidence for crucifixion in antiquity. Let me just uh, off-road with you for a moment here. What's something that has surprised you in this journey, examining ancient evidence for the crucifixion in antiquity? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. So over the last 20 years or so, um, much of my writing has been focused on looking at all ancient sources that I can find, Jewish, um, Greco-Roman, and then going back into uh, ancient Near Eastern sources as well as kind of precursors to crucifixion. I think I've been shocked at how ancient the idea of suspending somebody aloft on a tree is. It's represented in the Old Testament um, and is very evident in the cultures around the Old Testament, uh, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, Persia. So you have a sense of this is something that has been going on for a long time and takes a very specific form by the time we're in the New Testament. And yet, you know, the, the Old Testament in uh, mentioning that a person who's hung aloft on a tree is cursed, cursed of God even, mm-hmm. already was preparing us for what Jesus would undergo on our behalf, um, the curse that he bears on our behalf. So that's one of the things that's really struck me is the antiquity and yet the way that this, you know, has been in the providence of God for a long time, knowing that his son would endure such a horrid punishment. That's, that's one area. Uh, there's, there's many others, but that's, that's one that comes immediately to mind. Hmm. Dr. David Chapman is a driving force in the creation of Crossway's Archaeology Study Bible. I noticed that all the footnotes were refreshingly readable. Ta-da! The font choice and type <laughs> size, perfect, even for folks who struggle to read smaller print. So I want to say thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I, I, that was one of the things that struck me. You know, right before the Bible came out, um, Dr. Currid and I uh, had a chance to visit Crossway's offices there just outside Chicago in Wheaton and meet with the team. And there were about 70 people that worked on this project just in the offices at Crossway. That's not including the contributors and the people around the world that submitted you know, information. And we had a chance to meet with the guy who selected the typeface or the typefaces, you know, and, and mm-hmm. he was just so exacting in what he did, and his, his whole goal was to make it readable. Yes. And there's so much information crammed in there, you know. It's just overwhelming, honestly, to think that this person who was so dutiful in his work, you know, I think made this even more accessible to people, all this information in a readable way. Right. I, I think when I, when I zoom back from the whole thing, I'm struck by the extreme attention to detail you know, nobody would probably, uh, apart from somebody in the industry, say, oh, that is a, uh, you know, nine-point sans-serif font. But they all give off a feeling, and that feeling is one of, come, explore. Uh, this is readable. This is doable for you, and, and I find that refreshing. Uh, how, how would you say this Bible might be unique from others? We're not trying to throw rocks at other study Bibles, but how does this one stand out for you as you look back on your own involvement? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the, the name of it gives it away. It's an archaeology study Bible, and so um, it, it really is oriented. The, the notes are not principally oriented to kind of general study Bible kind of commentary notes, which are incredibly helpful. I, I really appreciate the study Bible as a genre. But these are oriented towards just bringing in historical facets that we know from archaeology, from literary study, that illumine what's going on in the text in the moment. And so you know, like uh, what I think archaeology is so good at in biblical studies is both give us a sense of the reliability of Scripture, but then especially also illumine ancient culture to us so that we can 
really read it again as if we were there, as if we're we're really experiencing it in that time period. And so I'm I'm hoping that that's what people's experience are in reading this, that they have a, a greater confidence in the reliability of the scripture in front of them, but especially that they have a better experience of just reading it as a person, yeah. as a first reader would. That's Dr. David Chapman of the Archaeological Study Bible. I have to ask you, when you, when you uh, meet someone about whom you have described this Bible, where do you take them first? What do, you, what do you want them to first look at? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would take people to where they, uh, a book of the Bible that they know well, that they want to understand just a little bit more. And so, you know, one example that comes to my mind is the Gospels. And uh, Paul Wright, who did the work on the Synoptic Gospels, I, I did a little work on the Gospel of John, um, but on the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Paul's notes there are just so detailed and so helpful, so readable, so understandable, and you just feel like you're walking right alongside Jesus and understanding the world that much better, understanding what he's saying that much better, understanding who would be listening and how they would receive what he was saying that much better. And so that's a place I, I love to start. But, I, you know, honestly, you can go anywhere in the Bible. The Old Testament sections are just fantastic. Um, I've already mentioned the, the book of Psalms. I, mm-hmm. I just found that the amount of material there to just really invoke, again, a sense of worship and what the psalmist is trying to sing about in their own culture, and it really brought me into that all the better. So I, I, I would just kind of go to your favorite book and start there yeah. and, then, and then find your way around. Yeah. And we hope you'll do just that. Check out the Archaeology Study Bible, a link to uh, that resource at our website, thelandandthebook.org. We've been talking with Dr. David Chapman, a uh, contributing force there to the Archaeology Study Bible. Thanks for your time. Thank you, John. It's a great privilege to be with you and with your people. And it's been great to have you on. Dr. Charlie Dyer is next here with a fresh look at your questions on the land and the book. believe it, the Thanksgiving holiday soon upon us. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, do you like turkey? I love turkey, John, and I love this time of year because it is a time when we stop and remember to be thankful. Yeah, and I would I would quickly fast forward to pumpkin pie as something to be thankful for. I, I love pumpkin pie, especially if it's cold and uh, loaded with a mountain of whipped cream. You know, John, my favorite pie is pumpkin pie. In fact, for my birthday growing up, my mom would make me a pumpkin pie on my birthday rather than a cake. Well, you know, food aside, we certainly have so, so much to be thankful for. God has blessed us, and good time to just pause and give thanks. All right, here on The Land of the Book, we like to dedicate this segment to questions, yours, and you should know that we're thankful for every listener who takes the time to write us. Like Don, he says, when Moses or Solomon addressed the people, how were thousands of them able to hear and understand what was being said? Were messengers used to convey the Moses or Solomon words to smaller groups of people? Yeah, we're not told how it was done, though I'm not sure if it would have been uh, necessary to use messengers or runners. We know, for example, historically, D.L. Moody spoke on numerous occasions to thousands of individuals at one time before the advent of public address systems. Uh, Spurgeon had crowds of 6,000 or more packed into his church to hear him preach, and there are stories of John Wesley and others speaking in the open air to crowds of thousands. Jesus fed 5,000 men and women after teaching and healing all day. So I suspect speakers knew how to project their voices, and the audience knew how to listen attentively. They also likely had better hearing because they didn't have the noise pollution that's damaged the hearing of so many today. 
Hmm. Now, those are interesting uh, perspectives. I never really gave that a thought. Here's a question from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In the account of the dedication of the temple, 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats were sacrificed. That's a lot of meat. Was the flesh all burned up or was some given to the people to consume? Without refrigeration, this would be challenging. And how was the blood and offal from these sacrifices disposed of? Yeah, well, the passage says the animals were offered as a peace offering to the Lord. The peace offering was the one offering that the worshipers were allowed to eat. Uh, And since the celebration lasted 14 days, I assume we need to divide the total number of sacrifices by 14. Now, that's still a lot of sacrifices each day, but it was also feeding a large number of people. In terms of the disposal of the blood and offal, we're not given those details, but I assume the blood had to be washed away with water and the offal was disposed of and burned in a special location somewhere outside Jerusalem. That's what Leviticus 4 said was to be done with it, and so they must have been doing that every day. I like this question. A guy's reading through the book of Job, and he says, As far as I can tell, neither Job nor his friends accused Satan of inflicting Job with his troubles. Any thoughts on why God stands accused by Job, but not Satan? From Job 1, we know that God permitted Satan to afflict Job. Yeah, you know, actually, I find it fascinating that we're let in on the secret reason for Job's suffering, but neither Job nor his friends are ever told. I believe they didn't accuse Satan because they had no idea he was responsible. They just assumed God was the one punishing Job. In many ways, we tend to see life the same way. When things are going well, we assume God's blessing. And when things aren't going well or when they start going wrong, we often believe God's the one causing it. You know, Lord, what are you doing here? Uh, To me, that's just uh, another example of the ring of reality for the book of Job. The test between Satan and God was over whether Job would curse God should things go wrong. Job questioned why God was punishing him. But he never cursed God. He never turned against God. He never charged God with being unrighteous. And that's indeed what set Job apart from the friends. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and you're listening to The Land and the Book. We come your way every week through the courtesy of this station. Hey, if it's been a while since you've said thank you for The Land of the Book, drop them an email, would you? Give them a call. Send them a postcard. It's Thanksgiving season. Let's be thankful. Sharon says, I love your program. My question is, I'm studying courage. And often in the Old Testament, a verse will be read speaking of good courage. Now, why the word good? What does that mean in reference to courage? Yeah, and that's in the King James Version, it uses good courage in passages like Joshua 1, you know, be strong and of good courage. But if you look in some of the more modern translations, they'll often translate it as something like be strong and courageous. Uh, That's probably a better translation for us today. And in those passages, the writer uses two different words for strong. The the passage literally says something like, be strong and strong. Uh, The use of the second word intensifies the first. Uh, In the King James Version, they do this by adding the word good. Uh, In other translations, they intensify it by changing strong to courageous. But in essence, both are trying to convey the same thing. We can be really strong if we follow what God says. Now, in in 2 Corinthians 5, it also sometimes translates good courage, and it's translating actually a single Greek word. Uh, The word has the idea of confidence or courage. Uh, The Greek word for good isn't in that passage. So again, good courage is probably just another way to say confidence in 2 Corinthians 5. John Gillett listens to us up in northern Wisconsin, and he says, I'm wondering about the numbering of the commandments for the Jewish people. In their public display of the commandments, is there just one tenth commandment, that is, do not covet? 
Do they list the second commandment about not making any graven images? The Roman Catholic and Lutheran denominations remove the second commandment against graven images, and then to have a full Ten Commandments, they divide the Tenth Commandment into two separate commands. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet your neighbor's house, and don't covet your neighbor's wife, servants, etc. Do you have a, a Jewish statement on the correct numbering and listing of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, uh, we all know the Ten Commandments, but most people aren't aware that the specific commandments get divided differently by different groups. And so as the, uh, the writer noted, uh, the Roman Catholics and Lutherans combine verses 2 to 6 uh, into one commandment, and then they divide verse 17 into two separate commandments. Other Protestant groups and denominations see Exodus 20 verses 2 and 3 as the first commandment, verses 4 to 6 as the second and then verse 17 is the 10th and final commandment. And if that's not confusing enough, most Jewish sources see verse 2 as the first commandment, 3 to 6 is the second, and 17, which is verse 14 in their Bibles, as the 10th. So the reality is that there are 13 specific commandments listed in those verses. Everyone agrees that some are parallel and they refer to the same thing, but Different groups disagree on which commandments ought to be combined together. It's not a major issue since everyone agrees in general on what the verses say. Now, personally, I see verses 2 and 3 as the first commandment. God announces he's the God who brought Israel out of the house of slavery, and he tells them they're to have no other God before him. I see verses 4 to 6 as the second commandment. Uh, the command itself is in the first part, verses 4 and the first part of 5, and the second part of verse 5 and verse 6 provide an explanation for that commandment. And then I see verse 17 as the 10th commandment. So it, it focuses on the prohibition against covetousness and gives several specific prohibitions illustrating the kind of things that Israel was not to covet. Janie writes, Charlie and John, you have no idea how much your insight means to those of us who love the Word of God, yet will never be blessed with the opportunity to travel to Israel or its surrounding land. So a huge thank you. Well, that's neat, uh, Charlie, because Janie is affirming your original vision for the program. Uh, she is, and uh, that just, uh, I love that. So thank you, Janie. She says, as I read my Bible, I try to sit in the story. I like that, sit in the story, to recreate as much as possible, sight, hear, touch, taste, so I can better understand the impact of the words meant for me. All right, now recently, I've wondered again, how literal are these verses in Exodus 24, verses 6 and 8, or Hebrews chapter 9, where it talks about sprinkling blood on the altar, the people, white priestly garments, tabernacle, all vessels, and the scroll. Did the priests always wear clean and then spattered garments? And the scroll, was it never to be read? Just more a blood-sprinkled symbol? Maybe I'm missing the, the whole point. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Janie, I think you're taking exactly the right approach, though, as you try and visualize what the Bible is saying there. Now, I take those verses literally in the sense that this was what was actually happening historically. Uh, when the Mosaic Covenant was inaugurated for Israel, it was read to them and then written down. Then animals were sacrificed to help confirm or institute the covenant. Half the blood was sprinkled on the altar while the other half was sprinkled on the people. Uh, since in verse 4, 12 stones were set up to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, it's possible the blood was sprinkled on those stones rather than physically on the people. Uh, the book of Hebrews adds that some of the blood was also sprinkled on the original copy of the law written by Moses. Now, I see that as a one-time ceremony while the law was being adopted, though drops of blood would have landed on the altar, the priests, the people, or the stones, and the book of the law. I suspect the amount landing on any one object was relatively small. 
The action was intended to be symbolic in the sense they were sprinkling the blood on all of these pieces to ratify the covenant that was made. God was going to keep his part and the people were committing to keep their part. So uh, that's the intent, I think, for that sprinkling. A quick reminder that at our website, you can find information about any guest, past or present, at thelandandthebook.org. Don't go away. Welcome back to this final segment of today's edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with a confession. I really like books. Like them so much that Amazon is a weakness for me. I buy uh, books on eBay. I buy books just about everywhere. My shelves are lined with them, but I find out I'm not the only one. But let's not jump ahead of the story. The story being Charlie Dyer's, of course, in his devotional coming up. Right now, let's pause and enjoy this Holy Land experience. Everyone that calls in about their experience always says that the Bible came alive. And certainly when you go to Israel, you you really have a new perspective on reading the Word of God. The thing that was amazing to me was when they talk about how Jesus was in one place and then he was in some other place miles away and the fact that they didn't have transportation and had to walk all around uh, gives you a new perspective when you when you read that and you go from city to city. So uh, I know you guys know this, but the Word of God is living and active and uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. Read the Word. Thanks. Hi, my name's Kimberly. I'm from Chicago. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to go to the Holy Land, but I just got back from Turkey and. What I saw there was truly inspiring, particularly the cave churches and cities that Christians would hide in, um, first the Romans and then from the Muslims, and just facing so much persecution and persisting in their faith is truly inspiring. And you go into these cave churches and there's this intense energy that you can immediately feel in listening. Don't you love hearing the experiences of people who've been to the Holy Land and now see the Bible, see life differently, all because of that one trip? Hmm, Amazing. Well, Charlie, I made a confession up front that I think is a confession you might make as well with regard to books. I think you don't just like books. You really like them. I love books. The shelves in my office are filled with a jumble of old classics and commentaries and reference works. And over time, the books have started filling the space between the shelves, every nook and cranny. Most of my bookends are now in the closet, pushed aside by still more books. It wasn't always that way. Back when I had fewer books, I kept them organized by using bookends. Most were simple pieces of stamped metal, like you'd see on the shelves of a public library. But two sets of bookends were special, because they were gifts from friends. One set was made of glass and the other of marble and they added a sense of elegance to the books in between. I used those bookends to help highlight some of the more prized books in my library. In the same way, there are nearly two identical incidents in the Bible that help bookend and set apart the ministry of Jesus. I'm referring to his two cleansings of the temple. John 2 records a cleansing that took place at the beginning of his ministry, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe the one that took place before his crucifixion. Let's visit the temple during both incidents. John 2 describes a visit by Jesus to Jerusalem just after his first miracle. 
When Jesus arrived there for Passover, in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. To understand the scene, we need to know Jewish customs and the layout of the temple. Each family was to have a Passover lamb, and the lamb had to be sacrificed on the altar in the temple. People coming from a great distance had a problem, because the lamb they were to bring had to be without blemish or defect, and there was a possibility their lamb could get injured during the journey. Jewish custom solved the problem. People could sell their lamb in their village, carry the money to Jerusalem, and then purchase another lamb in Jerusalem to offer in its place. But where could one purchase such a lamb? The normal place would have been outside the temple. But where there's an opportunity to make a profit, there also exists the temptation for abuse. We don't know how it began, but clever vendors had moved their wares into the temple, probably into the court of the Gentiles. Perhaps the temple priests simply chose to ignore this infraction, or more likely, they were profiting by selling the concession rights to the vendors or even controlling the business themselves. But in any case, the temple bazaar was open for business. The bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle mixed with the prayers of the people inside the temple precincts. Near the cattle pens were the tables of the money changers. God required Jewish men to pay a half-shekel temple tax. And the leadership decreed it had to be paid using one particular coin. If you didn't have that coin, you could exchange the coins you did have for the proper currency. For a fee, of course. Business was brisk this Passover season when Jesus showed up in the temple to begin his one-man cattle drive. Fashioning a whip, he drove the animals out of the temple. Picture the scene. Worshippers on their way up the stairway to the temple jump to the side and press themselves against the cold limestone walls as a mixed throng of young lambs and calves skittered their way down the steps. Jesus then turned to face the tables of the money changers. Sweeping his hand across the tabletops, he scattered the coins and then grabbed the tables and overturned them. I imagine the money changers momentarily jumped back and then scurried forward to scoop up the coins bouncing across the stone plaza. As the disciples watched this drama unfold, the words of Psalm 69.9 came to mind. The zeal for your house consumes me. The scene from John 2 is bookended in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, this second event occurring the week of his crucifixion. It's likely the temple leadership did remove the offensive practices for a while in response to Jesus' one-man demonstration. But the financial incentives were just too great, and some of the offensive practices found their way back into the temple courts. Lambs and calves were no longer being sold there, but caged doves were permitted, as were the money changers. The day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is when the stage was set for this second confrontation. We'll look specifically at the account in Mark 11. Much like before, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I can picture the latches on the wooden cages of the doves popping open as they clattered to the stone floor and the birds taking flight, sweeping around in their race toward freedom. The coins, once again, rolling and bouncing their way across the plaza. Total pandemonium. Mark also records that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The word translated merchandise is actually the word for a vessel, jar, or a dish. More likely, it refers here to people carrying jars of water or other products. It's not that they were selling these items on the Temple Mount. 
More likely, they were simply using the temple as a shortcut across the city. If you've been to Jerusalem and seen the size of the Temple Mount area, this makes perfect sense. Whether traveling north to south or east to west, that broad, flat expanse of the court of the Gentiles would have made a perfect and tempting shortcut, allowing someone to avoid the narrow streets winding through the rest of the city. The Mishnah prohibited individuals from entering the Temple Mount with their staff, sandals, or wallet, and it also prohibited them from using the temple as a shortcut. But people were disregarding this prohibition, that is, until Jesus became the enforcer. All these activities must have been taking place in the court of the Gentiles, the large plaza surrounding the inner court and temple proper. This was the closest place those who weren't Jewish were allowed to get to the God of Israel. In Isaiah 49.6, God commanded Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As a result, in Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, God described a time when foreigners would come to his holy mountain so that the house of God will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But in Jesus' day, the place of prayer for the Gentiles had been converted into an open-air market where vendors took advantage of those coming to worship God. Or as Jesus said, these hucksters had made it a den of robbers. So what lessons can we learn from watching Jesus' two cleansings of the temple? I see two. First, in our informal, secular, almost profane society, we need to remember that God is holy and that he is worthy of our sincere reverence and respect. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we seem to have lost that profound sense of reverential awe. Jesus is calling on us to give God the honor due his name. And second, I believe Jesus is reminding us that we have also been called to serve as lights to the world. And so we need to ask ourselves this disturbing question. Do our words and deeds point people toward the holy God of the universe? Or is our casualness toward God sending the message that he's not really worthy of our awe, respect, and devotion? Maybe we need to let Jesus cleanse the temples of our lives so others can see God's glory radiating out from us. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that devotional today on the land and the book, Jesus Cleansing the Temple. You know, you can hear today's broadcast again in its entirety at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Let me slow that down, thelandandthebook.org. And if you appreciate the broadcast, why not let the management at this station know? Thank them for carving out airtime for the program. They've got lots of choices, lots of people wanting to get on the air. So we appreciate your support of the land of the book by passing on the good word. I'm John Geiger. That's it for today's broadcast. See you back again next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.